this, uh, this Advent season, we're part of something a lot bigger than this little cluster, this little gathering here at Studebaker uh, in South Bend. We're turning to the same scriptures and hearing the same story of Jesus in the same movements that followers of Jesus all around the world are turning to. Uh, sometimes it's called the lectionary. It's just a way of uh, tapping into a larger unity and hearing the same story at the same time. So today, as followers of Jesus all around the world and different sorts of communities are moving their lives and their hearts toward Christmas, this Advent season, uh, this is the text, and I'm just going to get into it with you, and we're going to work on it together a little bit and see what we can find. This is Mark chapter 1. Now, Mark uh, is the earliest gospel in the New Testament. It's, the, it's written the earliest, and it's interesting. It actually doesn't have any of the, the Christmas story like that you're used to hearing. It picks right up with the life of the adult Jesus. So we're right at the beginning of Mark's gospel, and this is the very first thing that we read. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. So here uh, the writer reaches back into these older texts from Israel's history, these older Hebrew scriptures, and pulls it in. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. And John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey. It's like ancient Whole Foods. <laughs> and this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So like we're right on the verge of Jesus breaking into the scene and the adult life and ministry of Jesus being the topic at hand, right? We're right on the verge of that. But I, I just want to do a couple of observations on the text. So first of all, just, just take my word for this, okay? In the Bible, geography is theology. In the Bible, geography is theology. Just like, this is something that's hard for us to stay in touch with because as modern like, people, as human beings in the year 2017, we live with uh, less connection to land and place than ancient people did. And so we might skip right past things, but in the Bible, geography is theology. So let's pay attention to the geography here. There's one word that came up twice in the passage that's really important, and the word is wilderness. So this is a story about the arrival of God, about the advent of the divine, and, and we're, we're listening to like how it plays out and what kind of patterns we can discover. And one of the first things we see is in this story, it happens out in the wilderness, which is a way of saying it happens far away from the authorities and the structures of Jerusalem, far away from the religious uh, structures that define who's in and who's out. This is sort of a rogue, renegade, unendorsed, outside the boundaries movement at its beginning. As we just listen to how the story talks about the advent of God, the, the coming of the divine into the world. It's, it's outside of the endorsed place, uh, sort of beyond the boundary. So there's that. Geography is theology. Uh, details are often theology or spirituality in the scriptures. And it's clear from the description of John that this is not a dude who sort of walks and talks and lives with the signs of pedigree that a religious authority would have that day, right? So uh, he's, he's quite literally like in the way he dresses and the way he lives his life out there in the wilderness. He's far from the kind of pedigreed person that you would expect to announce the arrival of God. This is rogue, renegade stuff. 
Now, this might explain the fact, the fact that like, the, the, the story of the advent of God is out there outside the boundaries with a person who's not pedigreed. It might explain why the types of people show up in this story who show up in this story. Like, it might explain some unexpected characters that are a part of the Christmas story as you're used to hearing it. Some unexpected characters who are part of, like, if you have a little nativity scene at home, there's some unexpected characters there, but you may not think of them as unexpected. Uh, what about like a living nativity? Anybody ever been to one of those? Uh, growing up, uh, one of the more illustrious parts of my religious heritage was to join my parents and my brother in our church's uh, sort of living nativity thing. And so we had this thing, it was in the area here, and if you're like my age or older, you might have been a part of it. It's called Bethlehem Revisited. And for years, we did this thing with our church up in, up in Granger. Uh, we, would, we would put on this sort of living nativity, and like thousands and thousands of people would come, parents with their kids, and you, th- what would happen is they would start in our sanctuary or auditorium, and we'd do a little dramatized scene on the stage there, and then they'd go and they'd join a family. And so like we'd group people up into groups of 40, and each group of 40 had a family leader who was a, a, a male in our church who was usually dressed in some sort of tragic like quasi Middle Eastern costume of some sort, right? With a headpiece and like a walking stick and a lantern. And everybody in the group who had come to be a part of this would get papers handed to them. So you'd be given a biblical Hebrew Israelite name and a lineage for your family and the kind of work that you do. And we'd coach you on the fact that, you know, we're here in Nazareth, wink, wink, but we're about to go on the long journey to Bethlehem. So here's the rules of the road. And then we'd leave the church building and walk out on the street. And when I was young, I wasn't old enough to be trusted to lead a family. And so I had to find other ways to like make myself useful in my little Hebrew boy costume that my mom had made for me. And so, uh, so right after you left Nazareth, the first thing that each family encountered along the way was this Roman guard shack. So we picked the biggest, strongest dudes in the church, put them on real horses, and they put Roman uh, centurion costumes on, and they would stop the family to inspect them, you know. And since I was looking for something to do, I made a deal with the Roman guard volunteers that I would slip into each family as it came by like a spy, right? And then they'd grab me, and they'd be like, who is this, a spy? And I'd be like, no, I'm not a spy. You know, that, that, was, that was little Jason. And then, and, then, and then they would take little Jason and they would drag me, quite literally drag me. I'd go screaming and kicking. And they'd take me behind the guard shack and they'd take this big old metal shovel, which they used to clean up after the horses, if you will. They'd take this big old metal shovel and they would slam it against the guard shack as loud as they could and they would scream like they were beating me. And then I was told we couldn't do that anymore because <laughs> this was a, a family affair. So that's the first station. And then the next thing that would happen is the family would be led along State Road, uh, like along the side of State Road 23, back where this church was, and we'd see these cars, and we always had these very clever, punny jokes, like, my, what strange chariots on the path this night, you know? And, like, later on, like, we had angels, like, in a very rickety deer stand up in the tree, and, like, a floodlight would hit them, and so far none of them have fallen out that I know of, and shepherds and sheep and a tax-collecting tent and the village of Bethlehem, and we had the little nativity scene there with baby Jesus, and, and one year one of the goats, that, the live goats that was in the nativity was in heat, so it was making very strange noises, so we had to remove it from the nativity scene. So this was part of it. But I, I want to I talk to you about the strange characters that are part of the nativity moment here. Because that, the thing that you would experience on the, the path to Bethlehem in our little reenactment after the guard shack, after watching a child uh, beaten by Roman soldiers, the next thing that you'd do, you'd come around a corner, and there would be these, these three men dressed up in strange, exotic-looking clothing, bright colors and fake jewels, and they would have camels. And they would point in the sky and they say, have you seen this thing? And what they were pointing to was that we had an old TV antenna on top of a barn in the woods by our church and we'd strap some lights on top of it to be the star. And they'd say, have you seen this star that we're following, you know? 
These are some of the strange characters I want to get at. Uh, believe me or not, this connects to our, our text today, okay? Because um, we're talking about the unendorsed, the um, unpedigreed, the out of bounds, and the arrival of God that's even for them. I want to talk about these strange men for a moment. Mark doesn't tell that story because Mark isn't talking about the early life of Jesus, but the book of Matthew does. So let me take you uh, to this moment in Matthew early on. Here we're reading about the advent of God. This is Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. These are sometimes called the three wise men or the three kings, the Magi that come from the east. And they saw a star and they've come to worship. I want to help us uh, appreciate where these characters are coming from. So if you would close your eyes for a moment, I just want to have us imagine something. Close your eyes and imagine that, that never in your life have you seen an iPhone uh, screen. You've never seen a computer that's been illuminated, a, a screen that's been brightly lit. You've never had to turn down the brightness on anything. You've never gotten into a car where the dash is backlit. You've never watched TV. You've never seen a movie. You've never tuned into Netflix. You've never seen a light bulb. You've never seen a neon sign. You've never seen anything like this trip at Vegas. You've never seen any kind of electrified, illuminated thing. And so in your experience, after the dark, or after the sunset, when it's dark, You might be in your home and the brightest light you have comes from a candle or a lantern. Except, of course, if you walk outside and you see this. You can open your eyes. It's a basic point, but it helps to get back in touch with it. That uh, For ancient people, this, uh, a starry sky, would have a grip on you. It would be like the best thing on TV that night, if you will, right? It would be captivating. You would walk out, and surely you would pay attention to it. Not only would you pay attention to it, it's possible that the things that have our attention eventually become how we find our way. That the things that have our attention eventually become how we make sense of the world, how we find a path in the world. The things that have our attention may become how we try to understand what is moving in the world. What's carrying the story forward in the world? What kind of story is this? The things that have our attention become how we find our way. And so these magi, understandably, have uh, taken on this trade of looking to the stars, the brightest, most compelling, most captivating thing in their experience, and they've been paying attention. Now what's also interesting is this, this impulse that the things that have our attention become how we find our way. That seems to be uh, uh, an idea which is understood in the scriptures and it brings with it a warning. So let me show you uh, how the Hebrew scriptures think about this experience of looking up at the stars and trying to make sense of our world. This is in Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. If a man or a woman living among you in one of the towns the Lord gives you is found doing evil in the eyes of the Lord your God in violation of his covenant, watch this, and contrary to my command, has worshiped other gods bowing down to them or to the sun or the moon or the stars of the sky, and this has been brought to your attention, then you must investigate it thoroughly. If it's true that you catch someone paying too much attention to the stars, and it's been proved that this detestable thing has been done in Israel, then take the man or woman who has done this evil deed to your city gate and stone that person to death. 
Now, just in case the lesson of this isn't clear, let me take you now to an ancient rabbinical commentary on this text. So that was Deuteronomy, and this is Deuteronomy Rabbah, which is an ancient uh, Jewish uh, commentary that sort of summarizes the message of that. This is how it's understood. The Torah, like the way of God, the way of God is not in heaven, nor is it with those who occupy their time in studying the heavenly bodies. That's not all. There's more. Next slide. This is in Jeremiah. Don't learn the ways of the nations or be terrified by signs in the sky, though the nations are terrified of them. Or how about this in Isaiah? Keep on then. And by the way, this is God getting sarcastic. When God is being snarky with you, beware, right? When the maker of the universe is using sarcasm, we have a real problem. God speaks. Keep on then. Go ahead with your magic spells and your many sorceries. All the counsel you've received has only worn you out. Let your astrologers come forward. Go ahead. Those stargazers who make predictions month by month, let them save you from what's coming upon you. Surely they, the astrologers, they are like stubble. The fire will burn them up. In other words, in the Bible, in the Hebrew Scriptures, in the Jewish imagination, for these people, the message is we don't do stars. God does not do stars. We don't do stars. We don't associate with people that do stars. When we find people doing the star thing, we stone them to death. We don't do stars. That's the sort of starting point for for thinking about astrology and the scriptures here. Now we have the Magi. Now this is one of those moments in the Bible where it's possible that because you know where the story is going, you might miss what the story is doing. Like because you know that your nativity scene at home today has magi, you know where the story is going. These guys are going to find the baby Jesus, and the advent of God will be a real experience in their lives. Like because you know where the story is going, you might miss what it's doing. Because what it's doing is like here in Matthew, this, this part of Scripture, it's like it's shooting a bank shot off of other parts of Scripture where we read again and again and again, we don't do stars. The people who do stars are out of bounds, unendorsed, unincluded, not pedigreed, not the right people. That's not how you tap into the activity of God in the world. That's not how you find God. That's not how the advent of God will come into your life. But then we have Matthew and the Magi, and we're meant to feel that tension here If uh, what you know so far is what a good uh, original reader of this text knows, which is that we don't do stars and God does not do stars, and men from the east have come and they're doing stars, if that's all you know, the story doesn't go like this. After they'd heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, And they bowed down and worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. So this is a story about God who comes, who arrives, who meets us in the world and brings with, with him in that meeting kindness and grace and good gifts for the world. This is a story about a God who arrives. And it's a story about a God who arrives in a way that's dramatically indiscriminate about whether the people who will receive him are in or out. This is a story about the arrival of God which ignores all of the boundaries that we might draw, even boundaries that we think we have understood from God. It ignores those boundaries and it seems that God is indiscriminately ready and willing to arrive in any kind of life like ready, willing to arrive to meet any kind of person, even magi from the east. 
This is really important. It might be important for you because you might have decided somehow, somewhere, that you are not a candidate for the arrival of God. And when we say the arrival of God, we might mean of the experience of God's presence. We might mean the, the blessings that come from God's kindness. We might mean the feeling that, that whatever is behind all of this in the universe is either for you or against you. You might have decided you're not a candidate for the arrival of God. And something like shame or self-doubt may have caused you to hear these stories from a distance and assume they're not for you. This is also uh, the trick with the question that we turned to last week. If you were here last week, we, we grabbed this question from the scriptures and used it as a way to express our own prayers. How long? Like, how long, God? How long until we sense your arrival? How long until peace comes? How long until we know your presence, your kindness? How long until your blessings arrive? How long till you heal things? How long till things get fixed? And we said that's a good question because it opens us up. And it is a good question because it does open us up. But here's the trick. If you're opened up, you might be a bit like a body on an operating table, which means really good stuff can go on. You can get healed. But you're also susceptible for some other things to slip in, right? Like a, like a bad infection from the hospital days. And so we get opened up by this aching question, like, how long, God? Like, how long until I sense your presence? How long until... Uh, I'm able to get my life back together. How long until I know a world where there's peace and healing? Like how long? It's a good and appropriate question and it opens it, uh, us up. But if you've been asking how long, at some point, a lie might have slipped in as an answer. And the lie is how long? Well, for you, it's going to be a very long time because of who you are and what you've done and what your background is. The lie might slip in and say you are at the bottom of the waiting list because of who you are, because of what you've done because you don't have the pedigree, because you're not in bounds. The lie might have slipped in as we asked the question, how long? So it's important to also hear this from the stories of the advent of God and Jesus, that God is uh, dramatically, controversially indiscriminate about what kind of lives he will arrive in, about what kind of people he will invite, and even about what kind of channels he will use to invite them, stars in the sky. Uh, this is good for every person who might hang their head with shame or self-doubt and think that you're not eligible for that arrival. This is also good for any of us who ever look at anybody else and think they're not eligible for the arrival. I, uh, a few years ago, a friend of mine showed me this writer online, and it was not the kind of reading that I normally do. Uh, it was a blog by a pagan. And I don't mean pagan like disparagingly, I mean an actual practicing pagan. I didn't know there was that sort of thing in the world today, but the, an actual practicing pagan uh, from the Pacific Northwest, obviously. Um, <laughs> I just think of Portlandia, like the show. Like, so this person uh, lives out there, and apparently this person is actually like a known figure in pagan spirituality circles. And so there are people who go to the woods and do mantras to the forest spirits or whatever, and, and this person is an actual practicing pagan. And not just a practicing pagan, but a leader in the movement of pagan spirituality. And they have a blog and a, and a name by which they're known in that community. And my friend shows me uh, this person's blog because in the middle of all these posts about pagan spirituality, a new post arrives that my friend shows me. And this, this pagan leader starts writing um, post after post about the peculiar experience he is having in real time, which is that he says, guys, I'm freaking out. Hey, pagan community, I'm kind of freaking out. But I feel like Jesus is calling me and I don't know what to do about it. And he starts writing about um, what he describes as the arrival of God um, 
that, he, that he's knowing through Jesus, meeting him in cafes and in artwork, and he just can't um, find any other way to describe what feels like a bit of a magnetism that's pulling on him. And he says, I f- I'm freaked out. I don't know what to do. So I'm reading this, and something just hooks my heart, you guys. There's something about the way that he's writing and the sensitivity that he has to things that um, feels uh, like very alive and important. And so I read him and I'm really captivated by this writing and I actually reach out to him on Twitter and we become Twitter friends, which is a strange new part of life in the modern world. You know, like we start DMing each other a little bit. Um, and the more we talk uh, in our conversation, it's like as this thing is arriving in his life, like through this friendship that, that sort of sprouts between us, I actually discover like some of this fresh energy in me toward Christ and toward the arrival of God. And he actually begins to help me name something that had been like sitting inside me for a very long time about how I relate to the experience of God that I hadn't been able to name. And so actually like we're, we're DMing and you can only get so far. So then I actually end up writing um, like, a, like an article, like a, a blog post myself. And it's a couple thousand words of me sort of channeling this it, this thing that I, got, I had been looking for words for for a very long time and couldn't have found it. I wrote a post that's, uh, it's, I don't want to be a Christian was the name of it. <laughs> that might sound basic. Uh, the, the underlying idea was like, um, I was just sort of exhausted by religious structures and experiences. And as a guy who works at a church, like it was just wearing me out. And the underlying impulse is I want to be a human. I want to be alive. I want to be whole. I want to be integrated. I want to be at peace with God and with the world. Like, I want those things, but those don't feel necessarily like they have a label for them except human and alive and it was in my conversation with him that this thing just like broke open inside me and it was really really powerful and so the pagan and the pastor are there and uh and I'm thinking as this is happening that not only might you find the arrival of God waiting across those lines or in unexpected spaces it may be that you can especially discover the arrival of God across those lines and in unexpected places Uh, In the Gospels, the arrival of God is dramatically indiscriminate, (laughs) welcoming um, many different kinds of people, the religious, the irreligious, the conservatives, the liberals, the buttoned up and the falling apart, (laughs) dramatically indiscriminate. And so uh, I want to make sure you hear that loud and clear. If it's for you because, um, because you've been hanging your head, perhaps, and through shame or self-doubt, you've decided you're not a candidate for the arrival of God. Or because there's somebody else or some other group of people or some label or something that you see in someone else that you may not have said it out loud, you might not have named it, but somewhere inside you there is the conviction that's grown that says they're not a candidate for the arrival of God. But if astrologers from the East can come and find themselves right there at the feet of Jesus, while those with the pedigrees are walking right on by that manger, not even realizing that God has shown up, then maybe God is just dramatically indiscriminate about how he arrives. The good news then is, if we sort of like cleared that up a little bit, then we can move on to a question like, which is, okay, so what do you do? I don't care who you are. What do you do if you expect the arrival of God? If you, if you want to welcome the divine, like what do you do? Well, there's some language in the scripture from, from what we're looking at today, from Mark and other places, and I want to draw your attention to this. So this is back in Mark, but hear this closely. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice calling in the wilderness 
Prepare the way of the Lord. Let's, uh, let's leave that there and let's pay close attention. So what we said is that like God's uh, dramatically indiscriminate in, in who he will approach and how he will arrive. He'll show up uh, for the wrong people in the wrong places in the wilderness and then in Jerusalem. He'll show up everywhere dramatically and indiscriminately. And then we have this admonition like, if God is coming, if God will arrive, then prepare the way. Now let's, let's be careful and thoughtful about this. Uh, throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, this is a normal phrase. Prepare the way. Prepare the way for the Lord. Prepare the way of the Lord. And wherever you see it show up, depending on what translation you're reading, sometimes you'll read prepare the way for the Lord. Like prepare the way for the Lord. Other places, other translations, you'll read prepare the way of the Lord. And now I'm moving a little bit more to, into poetry than exact science here, okay? But hang with me for a bit. This is how I experience the difference between those two words. When I read prepare the way for the Lord, I inevitably end up in a place where I imagine like God showing up on a tour bus and he's waiting for the red carpet before he deigns to get out. Like God the prima donna who like, until you have cleaned things up and gotten things ready for the guest, the guest ain't showing up. Like that's, that's where that language takes me. It's interesting though that in the Greek and the Hebrew, if you look closely, every time it's prepare the way, in the Greek and the Hebrew, it's always of the Lord, which opens up a possibility for me and maybe it does for you. Which is to say like, look, God's going to arrive. It's clear, he's, he's going to arrive uh, dramatically and indiscriminately. God is going to arrive. The divine life wants to meet us in this world, in our lives. That question has been resolved. I think the question isn't so much, do we prepare the way so that he will come, so we can manipulate him, so we can get his attention, so he says, finally, you've cleaned things up enough for me to show up, because that's just clearly not true. Look for all the people that he shows up for when they don't have their act together, when they haven't cleaned things up. Maybe the point here is that God will arrive, but are you paying attention to the paths of his arrival? Best way I know to prepare a path, like in the wilderness, in the woods, is to walk it. I go walking in the woods uh, every Friday during the spring and the summer and fall. It's part of a Sabbath practice for me. I found a woods that I'm not going to tell you where it is because I love you all, but I don't want to see you there. Uh, and I go walking in the woods, and this is a deep, uh, deep old forest with a lot of growth in it. And there are paths that are through the woods, and it strikes me that if those paths aren't walked regularly, that growth will begin to crowd in, right? And there will be no path left, at least not one that you can see clearly or obviously. And I walk those paths sometimes and I think to myself, like, what if there are avenues of arrival that God, God's chosen uh, to arrive through? Like, God, God's not waiting for me to get it right for him to arrive. What if there are avenues of arrival, paths of presence for God, but that I'm not paying attention because I've given up on those paths and I've let them grow over. I've let them get weeded up and, and obscured. And so I've stopped paying attention. And so I'm not awake anymore to the possibility that that might be a path of God's arrival. Like, like, are there ways in your life and in your world that if we thought for a second, we might say, maybe God does want to arrive there. You, maybe God wants to give you the experience of his presence there, but you've stopped paying attention to that path. You've stopped walking the way of the Lord, if you will. You've stopped walking in that path, and so it's grown over, and you've stopped looking at it. Like, like maybe uh, there's a part of your personal life, your private life, the way that you spend your time when you're alone, the way that you use the space that you live in, and it's just... It's like um, an hour in your day or a space in your life where you've just sort of given up on that being a place where you might expect the arrival of God, the advent of the divine. And so you stop paying attention to it in that way and you let it grow over and get weeded up and neglected. 
It started perhaps with distraction, but now like you look at it and you're actually quite convinced there's no way that's a path for God and so you've given up on it. You've let it become something less than that. Maybe there's a relationship, marriage, romance, boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse, uh, a close friendship, someone in your family. And what's happened is uh, that you have slowly slipped it into a place where you don't see that relationship as an avenue for the advent of God. You don't see that as a place where you expect God. You don't expect anything good. You don't expect any healing, any new life there. And so what began perhaps as a little bit of innocent neglect has turned into a deep conviction within you that that is not a path for God. Maybe it's your work, your nine to five, the way you punch the clock, the office, the cubicle, the classroom, wherever it is that you show up, the factory floor, like, and you show up and, and you're there, but like you've, you've just sort of like decided that's not an avenue for the arrival of God, for the advent of the divine. Like how, how could there be any real fruit in that place? It's just a place that you punch the clock or maybe it's kind of a dark place or a cynical place or it's a place that has no room for religion or whatever. And I'm not suggesting that you like show up with like evangelistic tracks tomorrow and start passing them out to your coworkers. But I wonder, is there some real advent of God that you have stopped expecting, that, you, that you've stopped looking for? And that path, that pathway, what you call your work, it's, it's grown overgrown, neglected and weeded in terms of, of, of seeing it as a, a conduit for the, avenue, or the advent of God. We could go on and on, right? Like, like different places in your life, in our world, different circumstances that seem so intractable that we're just quite convinced that is not a place to expect the advent of God. But if this story is saying anything, it's saying that God is dramatically indiscriminate in, in how he will arrive, where he will arrive, like among whom he will arrive. He's dramatically indiscriminate. So perhaps it's time to prepare that path again. And maybe a way of doing it is by walking it ourselves, by returning to it with hopefulness and expectation so what was once a clear path becomes that again, and we're awake and aware, and we're watching, and we're listening, and we're praying. There's a passage in the Psalms uh, that's also uh, part of the lectionary today. It's another prayer or a poem that followers of Jesus are turning to all around the world. Listen to this. Love and faithfulness will meet together. Righteousness and peace will kiss each other. Faithfulness spring, will spring forth from the earth and righteousness will look down from heaven. And the Lord will indeed give what is good, and our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. God's um, dramatically indiscriminate about where he will arrive and among whom. And I wonder if there's some way that we could prepare that path. Not because he's afraid to get his feet dirty or walk uh, on a difficult trail, but because we've stopped paying attention and we're no longer awake. And it's possible to miss it when he arrives. Uh, to end today, I just thought we'd take a minute and reflect on this. So if, you, if it helps, you can close your eyes. I just, just want to sort of create a little bit of space for us to think about where it is that you might have stopped preparing a path. And maybe it's time to return to that path with a fresh hope or a fresh conviction. Um, so let's do this. If you would uh, just breathe deeply first. It really helps to breathe deep. Some of us have gone all week without a single deep breath that goes all the way down. Let me say this again. God is dramatically indiscriminate about where he will arrive and among whom. 
So if shame or self-doubt has caused you to rule yourself out, let's shake that off today. And if by chance you've decided someone else or some other group or some other label is ineligible or out of bounds for the arrival of God, let's shake that off today too. And if God will come and meet us, is there a path that you've neglected? Is there a way that you've turned from? Is there a place in your life, your family, your neighborhood, your world, where you've stopped looking for the advent of God? You've stopped scouting for the advent of God. You've stopped walking that path and it's grown over, become weeded up, and it doesn't even look like much of a path at all anymore. But what if that's precisely the path that you're being invited to prepare today? What if it's to reinvest yourself in a relationship? What if it's to start hoping and praying and working for some healing? What if it's to ask for help? What if it's to um, have a whole new imagination for what's at stake in your work as you show up each day and grind it out? What if it's the way that you read the news? And when you read the news, you just see again and again, no, there's nothing good here. The world's um, just getting worse and worse and worse. And so slowly your vision gets clouded and you stop expecting the advent of God in the world. And I wonder, like, what would it look like to enact that hope and walk those paths of faith again? I wonder what it would look like to prepare the way. And if you're able, you stand to your feet. This isn't so much like a rousing end to a sermon as much as I just hope this is a reflection that carries on into the week. But let me read to you from the psalm one more time as we go out of here like in the spirit of Advent and in the next few days look for those ways and paths that we may prepare again. This is from Psalm 85. Love and faithfulness will meet together. Righteousness and peace will kiss each other. Faithfulness will spring forth from the earth and righteousness will look down from heaven. The Lord will indeed give what is good and our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. Grace and peace be with you, friends. Amen. Love you guys. See you soon.